0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, do you know who we've gotten a lot of requests to talk about lately?
1: Yes, but I'll let you say it.
0: Harriet Tubman.
1: Oh, so many requests.
0: <laughs> we had all, I mean, we'd already been getting a lot. They, they started well before the announcement that she is going to be on the new U.S. $20 bill. Uh, we also had another big spike after the Drunk History episode yeah. about her. Uh, if you don't mind, lots of bleeped squ- swear words. Uh, that is quite funny. indeed. Uh, I, I watched it three or four times <laughs> while working on this episode. Um, so uh, most people are familiar with Harriet Tubman's involvement in the Underground Railroad, but she also, as people who have watched that, dr- that Drunk History episode, know that she was also a spy for the Union during the Civil War, among many other things. At the same time, uh, maybe more than anyone else I can think of in American history, she has this near mythical reputation that makes her kind of a tricky person to talk about.
1: Yeah, everybody has some tidbits of information, and some of that is accurate, and some of mm, it is not.
0: Yeah, there's a lot about her life and about slavery and the Underground Railroad in general that people know, with no in serious air quotes, but is really uh, like it's really taken for granted. But a, a lot of it is on somewhere on a spectrum between that can't be substantiated and that definitely did not happen. And a lot of this is because for a long time, children's books really dominated the work written about Harriet Tubman. We've talked about that phenomenon before, how a lot of important figures, especially in black history are the subjects of children's books and not serious academic scholarship as much, which is frustrating. Uh, Even the books for adults for a long time, uncritically repeated details from these 19th century accounts of her life that were definitely embellished and, really serious scholarly examination to try to get a more accurate picture of Harriet Tubman's life and work has been a lot harder to come by, and overall a lot more recent than the things that sort of set the standards of how we think about Harriet Tubman. So because there's so much to talk about, uh, and because so much of it requires some level setting, to be honest, we are going to talk about Harriet Tubman's life and work in two parts. And today's podcast is about her work liberating enslaved people, many of them her family members, By the Underground Railroad. And then in our next episode, we will talk about her Civil War work and her life as a spy and what came after that.
1: Because there are so many misperceptions about the Underground Railroad and the institution of slavery in the United States, we're going to get into some of that context before we talk about the details of Harriet Tubman's life. The use of unpaid, unfree labor began long before the United States became an independent nation. It was a big part of the economy and the labor force almost from the moment Europeans started trying to establish permanent colonies in North America. And we know enslavement existed in North America before European arrival, and there's an increasing body of historical research on enslavement of Native Americans by colonists as well. But all of that is outside the scope of today's episode.
0: Yeah, that is one of the things people will write to try to dispel talking about slavery. Like, slavery existed everywhere! Not what we are talking about. (laughs) So at first, this system of unfree labor in the colonies was based on indenture. Basically, people would pay their way from Europe to North America through indentured servitude, which was essentially an agreement to work without pay, for a particular amount of time in exchange for shelter and food and passage across the Atlantic Ocean. Sometimes this was a choice people made. It was sometimes under duress and sometimes not. It was people just wanted to move and that was the only way they could afford it. Uh, But other times it was a punishment that they were sentenced to.
1: Although the conditions indentured servants worked under could be appalling, and there were definitely cases of people dying before their indenture was over... This indenture had some very specific differences when compared with chattel slavery. The first and biggest was that there was an end date involved. Indenture was not supposed to be a lifetime condition. Once the indenture was over, that person was free to go and was often granted some kind of compensation in the form of supplies or land.
0: Indentured servitude also wasn't hereditary or tied to a person's race. As more colonists started moving to North America... Indentured servants included people from places like England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, and Africa. The first enslaved Africans to arrived in North America landed in Virginia Colony in 1619, and the Dutch traded them to the colonists as indentured servants.
1: However, a number of social, economic, and industrial factors led to the dominant system of unfree labor in the colonies gradually shifting from indentured servitude to chattel slavery. These factors included uprisings and rebellions on the part of indentured workers, the expense involved in contracting new indentured servants as the old indentures expired, and the ease with which white indentured servants could blend in with the rest of white society after escaping from an indenture. There were religious elements as well. In some cases, it was socially acceptable to hold a non-Protestant person in bondage. But if that person converted, that was no longer the case.
0: Beginning in the mid-1600s, colonies started to pass slave codes, which uh, defined exactly what it meant to be a slave. Many of these laws were written in terms of race. So whether they described slaves in general or enslaved people of African descent specifically, these codes meant that in a lot of places it became illegal for an enslaved person to own property and weapons, to congregate, to get married, to travel, and to learn to read or write. Chattel slavery became codified as something that was lifelong. It was hereditary based on whether a person's mother was enslaved. And it was tied to African descent.
1: When the Declaration of Independence was issued in 1776, slavery was legal in all 13 colonies. When the U.S. Constitution was signed, it didn't include the word slavery, but it did include references to the institution, uh, including Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3, which specified that a person held in service or labor in one state would not be discharged from that service or labor if they escaped to another state.
0: Then in 1793, to jump ahead just a little bit, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. Cotton was already being grown, in the South especially, and farming cotton was hugely labor-intensive. With the invention of the cotton gin, it was still labor-intensive, but it was a lot more lucrative because the process of removing the seeds from the harvested cotton became dramatically faster and easier. Consequently, the prevalence of slavery in the American South increased immediately and dramatically in response to how much easier it became to make a lot of money growing cotton. At the same
1: time in the North, slavery was on the wane, mostly because although plenty of northern people and businesses were profiting from slavery, there wasn't a huge industry that was dependent on slave labor like cotton farming or large scale agriculture that was actually being worked there. Also present in the North was an increasingly active movement for abolition. And while there were certainly abolitionists in the South as well, the institution of slavery was so entrenched in the South that the movement was all but invisible there.
0: All of this history together means that by the time Harriet Tubman was born, a couple of decades into the 19th century, many Northern states had either abolished slavery or had passed laws that were meant to gradually end the practice within their own borders. The idea that slavery should be abolished nationwide was at that point still largely viewed as radical, even among people who were advocating for its abolition within individual states. In southern states, on the other hand, slavery was flourishing. And other industries that were related to selling and managing and capturing escaped slaves were thriving in the South as well.
1: In many border states, including Maryland, where Harriet Tubman was born and grew up, slavery was still practiced, but often not quite as entrenched, widespread, and regulated as it was farther south. For the sake of comparison, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, enslaved people made up about 13% of Maryland's population compared to 57% of South Carolina, 55% of Mississippi, 47% of Louisiana, and 44% of Georgia. So in addition to having less of a distance to travel to reach a free state, slaves escaping from border states like Maryland were often traveling through territory that had fewer resources devoted to maintaining and protecting the institution of Slavery.
0: And this is where we get to the Underground Railroad, which is a name that was applied to a loosely collected network of people who were all working toward the same end, which was to liberate slaves. The Underground Railroad didn't have a formal organization or an established leadership structure, and it liberated people mainly from the border states, not from the deep south, as a lot of people may imagine. And while our focus is really on Maryland today, a lot of the Underground Railroad's work was really through territory that was closer to the Mississippi River.
1: It wasn't enough for the Underground Railroad to guide people to a free state, though. In 1793, Congress had passed a Fugitive Slave Act, which was basically an enforcement clause for Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, setting out how escaped slaves could be captured and returned to the South. A second, even stricter fugitive slave law would be passed in 1850, about 30 years after Harriet Tubman's birth.
0: So we don't know precisely when people started to use the term Underground Railroad to describe existing efforts to liberate enslaved people from bondage, but it was appearing in writing by the middle of the 19th century. So we're going to talk about Harriet Tubman's early life and how she became part of the Underground Railroad after a brief break for a word from a sponsor. Now we will get to Harriet Tubman's life specifically, and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of detail about the earlier parts of it. While she was enslaved, it was illegal for her to learn to read or write. And if she did learn after she liberated herself, the historical record doesn't reflect that. A lot of people think she probably did not learn. Instead, she dictated her life to people who were literate. And one of these people was Sarah Hopkins Bradford, whose biographies of Tubman were definitely filtered through her own lens and in some, case, in some cases were specifically written for the purpose of helping Tubman to raise money to support herself and other people. So they were books written to sell. Also, Harriet Tubman
1: was herself an incredible storyteller who spun out compelling, evocative and dramatic stories. So in many cases, once she narrated her autobiography, she was telling stories that she had told again and again for years. It's probable and really even inevitable that these stories had been refined and embellished along the way through her years of retellings. I mean, if you tell the same joke at a party and it's your go-to, if you tell it, Today, five years from now, you're still telling it, you've probably changed some things.
0: And you probably don't remember. Right. It's it's, exactly. not, it's not necessarily like, a
1: conscious move.
0: Right. In your mind, that's how it happened yeah. now. We do know that she was born in Maryland, which, as we said earlier, was at the time a slave state. Her birth date is unknown, although it was probably within a couple of years of 1820. Tubman's parents were Harriet Green and Benjamin Ross, and Tubman's name at birth seems to have been Araminta, and she was often called Minty. She took the name Harriet later on in her life.
1: We don't know much about her relationship with her family, uh, other than that she did have several siblings and was charged with caring for the ones who were younger than her when she was still a child. We also know that two older sisters were sold south. The family had some religious instruction, probably Methodist, and religious observance was part of their family and social life. Based on Harriet's later knowledge of folk healing and herbal medicines, it's also likely that they observed folk traditions passed down from her grandmother, who was part of the Ashanti tribe.
0: Tubman and many of her family were owned by a man named Edward Broaddus. Tubman was often hired out, including a brief apprenticeship as a weaver and work as a housemaid or a nursemaid. But a lot of her work involved manual labor, including working with timber.
1: While still in her adolescence, Tubman experienced a head injury that led to her being disabled for the rest of her life. An overseer or slave owner threw a weight while trying to stop an escaping slave, and it hit Tubman instead. The resulting injury led to what seems to have been a form of narcolepsy or epilepsy, which her biographers described as somnolence. She was basically prone to periods of what sound like seizures or unexpected periods of sleep.
0: There are also some people who theorize that the reason she never learned to read was that this head injury damaged the part of her brain that works with literacy. So uh, totally unclear whether that was the case or not. But that is a thing that people theorize. This disability, along the, with the fact that a lot of her work involved heavy manual labor, might be one of the reasons that she didn't marry John Tubman until she was about 24, which was relatively late for an enslaved woman living at the time. The Tubmans had no children, and their relationship was kind of unusual, not necessarily unusual in Maryland, but unusual in a general sense, because John Tubman was free, and Harriet Tubman, his wife, was actually another man's property. Harriet's efforts to free
1: other people started while she was still enslaved herself. In 1845, about a year after her marriage, she paid a lawyer $5 to look into her suspicion that her mother's enslavement was not legal. And it turned out she was right. According to the will of her prior owner, Tubman's mother should have been freed when she reached the age of 45. She had already been enslaved for another 11 years when Tubman confirmed those suspicions. Nothing seems to have come of this investigation, though. Uh, Tubman's father, who had been freed in 1840, legally purchased her mother in 1855, a full decade after Tubman's investigation revealed that she was in fact being enslaved illegally.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I went to a thing called History Camp that was here in Boston a few weeks ago, and I watched a, uh, several presentations that were about tracking down formerly enslaved people in New England and trying to, trying to figure out what their family histories were. And one of the rules uh, I, like it was sort of like the the rules for doing this kind of research, and it, it was dispelling misconceptions about uh about enslavement. And one of them was people did not necessarily follow the law. Like, yeah, people you can't kind of be like, well, it was illegal to do that to a slave. People didn't necessarily follow the law. <laughs> like, clearly, Tubman's mother was supposed to have been freed way before her husband legally bought her as a way to set her free. Anyway. Edward Broaddus died on March 9th of 1849, and in his will, he specified that his widow would have, quote, use and hire of Tubman and any children she had for the rest of her life so that Tubman could help raise his children. However, Tubman and the rest of her family were really worried that instead, some of them might be sold to pay off debts or settle estate fees, which was a common occurrence when a slave owner died.
1: Possibly because of the potential threat of being sold south, it was not long after this that Tubman escaped. Later that same year, she and two or three brothers left the plantation, although her brothers soon turned back and took her with them because they were afraid of the dangers they would face in escaping. So when Tubman struck out again, it was on her own.
0: In the earliest accounts of Tubman's escape, she had the help of a sympathetic white woman. She's described in the earliest biography of Tubman as, quote, a white lady who knew her story and helped her on her way, and who Tubman repaid for these efforts with giving her a quilt. However, later biographers added in one of the first fantastic embellishments that has become tied to sort of everyone's collective memory of Harriet Tubman, that she had a vision that she needed to follow the North Star that probably an embellishment. She did, however, talk later about feeling as though she had been called by God to help people to freedom. She
1: made her way to Philadelphia where she immediately began working with the anti-slavery community in the Underground Railroad. And we are going to talk about all of that after we pause for another break from
0: one of our fabulous sponsors. (laughs)
1: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true
2: Get emotional with me, Radi Devlukia, in my new podcast A Really Good Cry.
1: Uh, When she escaped to Pennsylvania in 1849, she found work at a resort to support herself, and she began making connections with the anti-slavery movement in the area. Soon, she was working with the Underground Railroad.
0: By the time Harriet Tubman became involved in the Underground Railroad, the idea that the entire nation should abolish slavery, which, as we mentioned at the top of the show, had been considered radical just 30, 30 years before, was starting to gain some traction. An organized abolition movement had been growing in the North for a couple of decades, and by the time Harriet Tubman reached Philadelphia, there were multiple anti-slavery societies, including women's anti-slavery societies, operating there. There were also anti-slavery newspapers, like William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator, which was established in 1831, and newspapers run by Frederick Douglass.
1: The movement for abolition had largely originated with escaped slaves and free African-Americans, and as it grew throughout the early-mid-1800s, it also attracted more white participants, particularly Quakers, who objected to slavery on religious grounds.
0: Most likely, Harriet Tubman's introduction to the organized anti-slavery movement in general, and the Underground Railroad in particular, came by a William Still, who was a free black man who would later self-publish a book on the Underground Railroad. Or it might have come from Lucretia or James Mott.
1: Tubman started making trips back into Maryland to try to free enslaved people beginning in December of 1850, when she went to Baltimore to bring back her niece and two children. Her niece's husband, who was free, helped plan this escape. Another trip to Baltimore may have followed, but the historical record on that one is a little bit spottier.
0: In the fall of 1851, Tubman went back to Dorchester County, where she had grown up, to try to get her husband, who was free, as we said before, but he had stayed behind in Maryland when Tubman escaped. However, when she got there, she learned that he had married someone else after she left. Marriages involving enslaved people really had no legal standing. So from a legal standpoint, his marriage to Harriet was not really a barrier to him marrying someone else after she left.
1: For about a decade, Tubman continued to make trips into Maryland to help people liberate themselves, many of them members of her family. Because it wasn't enough to make it to a free state, she also established a base of operations in British North America, which is now Canada. She secured some land in St. Catharines, which was across a suspension bridge from Buffalo, New York, near Niagara Falls. And to get there, she had to guide people from Maryland to Philadelphia and then into New York through Albany, Syracuse and Rochester before crossing the bridge.
0: Getting started in St. Catharines wasn't easy. After having liberated themselves, most of the people Tubman guided there had virtually nothing to live on or to use to make a living, It took a while before Tubman could establish a real foothold there. And even after she did, money continued to be a real problem.
1: According to the letters of Thomas Garrett, by 1855, Harriet Tubman had successfully returned to her old neighborhood four times and had liberated 17 family members and friends. By 1860, that number had grown to eight or nine forays into slave territory. The grand total is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 13 missions, leading 70 to 80 people to freedom herself, and instructing 50 or so others how to escape on their own.
0: One of these trips was to bring back her parents, who were elderly by that point, after her father was caught sheltering escaping slaves. After she returned with her parents, Tubman resettled in Albany, New York, but maintained her ties to St. Catharines, because her parents just were not happy living in Canada.
1: Harriet Tubman's last trip into Maryland was an attempt to bring out a woman described as a sister who sadly died before the trip could actually be made. The journey was documented in the letters of Martha Coffin Wright, and some elements of that letter are now firmly rooted in what people, quote, know, again, in in those air quotes, about the Underground Railroad. For example, Tubman and the seven people she was guiding used songs, not to convey coded information, which has become a popular part of Underground Railroad lore, but to help Tubman find the rest of the group after she had left them to forage for food and for them to signal back to her that it was safe to approach.
0: These missions that Harriet Tubman took uh, between Maryland and Canada really illustrate how the Underground Railroad really operated. A lot of people envision the Underground Railroad as being a firmly established network of mostly white conductors who were secreting enslaved, quote, cargo from deep in the South through a series of fixed hiding places in homes and barns and other buildings known as stations. So you would go from one station to the next one day at a time. In our collective imaginations, every stop is planned in advance and is part of a regularly used route from one place to another.
1: And while there were white people involved in the Underground Railroad, particularly among Quakers, as we mentioned earlier and there were definitely people who repeatedly sheltered escaping slaves in their homes or other buildings in reality the whole thing worked a lot more like what harriet tubman was doing here they were planned but they were also improvisational uh, these trips were you know mainly into border states frequently carried out by free or escaped african americans traveling by night and hiding by day who made use of connections they had and routes that they knew to do it
0: Contrary to popular mythology, Harriet Tubman did not invent the Underground Railroad, and the number of people that she guided to freedom before the Civil War was much lower than the 300 that is often cited. However, none of this should take away from what she was doing. Harriet Tubman's liberty and even her life were at enormous risk. Every time she returned to to slave territory and when she was in free states in the company of escaping slaves, who were also putting themselves at enormous risk by trying to escape. Really, she was jeopardizing her own life and safety any time she was in the United States at all, because she had escaped rather than being legally freed. There was also, at times, a bounty for her capture, although the number $40,000 that's routinely specified is inflated it was probably either 1200 or $12,000 there's some debate about the existence of that last zero by the late
1: 1850s and into the 1860s harriet tubman had become well known and well respected in new england's anti-slavery circles Her work guiding escaped slaves was at first a secret, but became more widely known in the years just before the Civil War. She earned the nickname Moses, and at anti-slavery meetings, people spoke often of the escaped slave who had returned to slave territory again and again to liberate others.
0: The Civil War began in 1861, which really changed the nature of Harriet's work. So that is where we are going to pause to pick up the next time.
1: So to hold us over before we get to that next one, will you read us some listener mail?
0: I will. And this is actually listener mail that is uh, directly tied to one of the themes of this episode. It follows our episode uh, on six impossible episodes where we talked about things that were possibly apocryphal. And it is from Marianne. Marianne says, hello, ladies. Thanks for the podcast. I just finished listening to the recent six impossible episodes where you talked about quilts as codes in the Underground Railroad. And I remembered a great story with similar themes that just isn't true. I completed my master's in teaching a few years back, and we focused heavily on social justice and diversity. One of my classes, the professor told us about a lesson that was given by somebody she knew on a song, Amazing Grace. The lesson explained that the author of Amazing Grace was a ship captain who had been involved in the slave trade. This captain had a conversion experience and wrote the song. The lesson also said that the music was inspired by the singing of slaves down in the hold. This is a great story, but when I researched it, it didn't hold water. It is accurate that the author of the lyrics of Amazing Grace was involved in the slave trade and that he did have a conversion experience. However, he did not write the music of the song, nor is the tune now associated with it the tune to which it was first set. The lyrics were set to existing tunes, as was quite common at the time. The tune we now use, which hymnals name Old Hundredth, is an old Calvinist tune that is dated to 1551. There, the usual attributed to details, but I will skip them. Ever since I did my research and realized the information was false, I have wanted to share the correction, but I was not sure if the information would be welcome. This is one of those stories that makes a person feel good and you like to have a cherished story debunked. However, since you shared your story with me, I decided to share mine with you. Thanks again for the many hours of enjoyment your research and presentation provide, Marianne. Thank you so much, Marianne. <laughs> I-, I wanted to read this for two reasons. One, yeah, that is one of the things that I obliquely referred to in that episode about uh, people sort of retroactively associating songs. Um <laughs> uh the, the, there's another one that's followed the drinking gourd like a, a lot of people think that is a, an underground railroad coded song but the historical documentation seems to indicate that it that's a lot more recent uh and the other is yeah some people were really mad about the quilts yeah <laughs> like there were definitely people who felt like uh we had trampled on a story that was important to them which is definitely not our intent um but that's definitely something that does not hold up under historical scrutiny. So, yeah, uh, I am in agreement with Marianne when I am talking to random people on the street and they suddenly talk about slave quilts for some reason. I'm probably not going to just abruptly correct them because that's rude. And my rule of thumb in life is only to correct people if I'm preventing embarrassment or preventing harm. <laughs>
1: a good rule. It's hard to live up to, I find. Yeah. I'm practically well, a mansplainer on some topics. but <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, and you could argue that, uh, that perpetuating stereotypes that sort of make the Underground Railroad into an experience meant to make white people feel better, that's harmful. Uh, but not in a way that I would individually stop a person in the middle of their sentence and tell them no, that's not really what the quilts were about.
1: Well, and it's one of those things where uh, to in the you would only do it to prevent embarrassment. Uh, I cannot imagine you. I certainly try not to do this, but I'm sure I have done so at some horrible point in my life. You do not want to cause embarrassment with the correction either. No,
0: no, uh, uh, yeah. There, there was a time in my relatively recent mem- memory where somebody pronounced the word crudite in front of me as crudites. I do that so, for uh, fun. That is fun. And I, I did, I did, I did gently correct that person because we were at a party where crudité were being served. And I was afraid that he would say it in front of other people and then be embarrassed when another person corrected him publicly about it. <laughs> so that was my attempt to prevent embarrassment. Anyway, uh, also uh, on the subject of quilts, quite a few people wrote in to mention the quilts of G's Bend. Mm-hmm. uh which are kind of an exception that proves proves the rule in the world of quilting the uh Gee's Bend is an African American community in Alabama where there is a long and passed down through generations history of uh of African American people quilting these quilts are beautiful they are in museum exhibitions and like now that is the thing people say when you mention like black quilting traditions and that's part of the part Of what we were saying in that episode, there are others also, but they have not been the subject of study like, uh, like the the traditions of frankly white people. So, anyway, uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com mist in history and on Twitter at mist in history. Our Tumblr is mist in We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com mist in history if you would like to learn a little more about what we have talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com and put the word Underground Railroad into the search bar. You'll find how the Underground Railroad worked. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com where you will find show notes for all of the episodes that Holly and I have done and an archive of every episode we have ever put out. Lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or mistinhistory.com.
2: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
4: wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.
3: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in LA. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets